I was at a dinner the other night, and one of our members, a faithful member, was uh, sitting on uh, the left of, uh, of mine, and he said, you know, I've spent most of my time studying the New Testament, so this studying the book of Judges is kind of a new experience for me. And he said, I'm really enjoying it. And I think, well, what's not to enjoy? I, I love history. I love the Old Testament in any case. But Judges is kind of a unique book. In fact, these, these stories are almost character studies, aren't they? In, in how God chose unusual people to make a difference in things that matter. People like, like you. <laughs> And people like me, I suppose, you know, uh, the last kinds of people that you would think they're almost cartoonish in nature. The first week, Pastor Garrett was up here and he talked about Ehud and, and how he was a, an unusual kind of guy, you know, a left-handed guy, a guy who thought differently, worked differently, and, and God chose him. People wouldn't have expected that God would have chose him as a leader. The next week, we talked about uh, this reluctant judge, Barak, who would not lead God's people, even though it was his responsibility, unless this mother of Israel, Deborah, you know, another unusual thing for a woman in the Old Testament, especially to be a leader, unless she stood by him. And so that was about reluctance in leadership, reluctance to engage, not just as a leader, but in relationships to make a difference in things that matter. And then last week we talked about Gideon, one of my favorite of all times. Uh, Pastor uh, Dion was back leading that discussion, you know, and, and God almost amusingly called him mighty warrior when everything about him from the time that God first said that term to him when he was in hiding, uh, all the way through all of his testing of God's, you know, commitment to him with the fleece, uh, all of that seemed to be exactly the opposite of being a mighty warrior. So, you know, we talked about how a coward could be used by God and God infused in him a degree of courage. Today we're talking about Jephthah, a man who uh, had a label, a man who was unacceptable to respectable society, a man that other Christians would, would just kind of ignore as he came into their presence. And maybe even if they wouldn't, he would come in with his head down and, and feel unworthy in the presence of respectable people because of who he was and and how he came into the world so we're going to be talking about that in just a moment i think there's some other reasons why these stories appeal to me uh first of all the word judges in the old testament actually means savior or redeemer now when we hear that term we automatically think of jesus and, and yet just like these people were unexpected saviors so also they're kind of a foretelling of the kind of person that Jesus would come from. He was born of a virgin. He was born in distant Galilee. He wasn't raised in a religious, uh, you know, uh, a family of authority. He wasn't the son of a Pharisee or a scribe or some religious leader. He came out of nowhere, didn't come up through religious training. And, and even when the disciples heard about him, they said, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel said, Seriously, does anything ever good come out of Nazareth? You know, knowing that no prophet was foretold to come from there. You know, not knowing that he had been born in Bethlehem. And then there's this idea of you and me being chosen by God to do anything important. I mean, maybe you're just along for the ride and you don't think that God has any expectations to use you. You know, you aren't uh, the kind of person that would typically make a difference in anything important in life. And you may be just the person that God has chosen. I think that's why he chooses these judges. And it's not so much what they could accomplish, it's what God could accomplish through them. Amen? You know, Facebook, social media has been interesting for me because, you know, sometimes you identify with people 
that you haven't caught up with in years. And, and uh, I know my friends are amazed that I do what I do for a living. You know, they, how could that possibly be? We knew you, you know, in grade school and high school. We have never expected you to do any teaching, especially from the scripture. So, uh, you know, it's just interesting that uh, God chooses who he will to do what he wants. Let's pray. Gracious moment, gracious Lord, there are moments throughout the week when uh, the world speaks into our life. We get into the car and the radio blares its messages, whether it's music or whether it's talk, and, and uh, constantly speaks into our life. Uh, Lord, we go to work and we're engaged in conversations and, and uh, we have responsibility. We, we engage in conversation with our spouse and, and with our children or with our parents and and constant noise. Help this to be a, a moment of silence, a moment of peace as you speak into our life. Let this be a, a silent time in which you can communicate truth into our world based on this story of Jephthah, a man who was rejected by most but accepted by you. Lord, bless us in this time, we pray in Christ. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, Jephthah was rejected by his family and also by all of Israel. And yet, not by God. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. I want to read it with you in context. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It's pretty long. I'll just summarize the rest of the story. And then I'm going to make six uh, points derived from the scripture. So here we go. Jephthah, the Gileadite. Notice his father was actually Gilead. So his father was kind of the head of this entire region, this village. And he was... Uh, identified as the leader. This guy was his father. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. And his father was actually Gilead, but he was born of a prostitute. You know, so his father had this indiscretion in his past. And it affects Jephthah in incredible ways. It affects also people's perception of Jephthah. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. Now, he had this son by this prostitute, but then he also had a wife in a respectable way in which he brought children into the world, and she bore him sons. Now, when they all grew up, they said, no way are you our brother, and they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance from our family. This is unusual because in the Hebrew culture, inheritance was received through the lineage of the father, not the mother. And he had a claim on his father, certainly, but his brothers didn't care about that. They drove him away so that when time came for the inheritance and the passing of land, the passing of money, uh, he would have none of it. They said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and he settled into a distant land, the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. You know, you drive him away from respectable people. What's left except people who have no respect? Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, their enemy rose up. The elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said, you know, who could uh, maybe lead us in this battle? Oh, we know Jephthah. He's a mighty warrior. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. So they went and found him and said, you know, come back. We're going to settle all of our differences. Jephthah said to the men, now let me get this straight. Didn't you hate me? Didn't you drive me from my father's house? Didn't you call me the son of a prostitute? You know, why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? You know, it's just dripping with 
human emotion. The elders of Gilead said, yeah, yeah, but that's in the past. <laughs> you know, we are turning to you now. You know, uh, we're sorry. Uh, so come to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gideon. Now, secretly, they thought there's no way we're going to beat the Ammonites anyway, and he's going to die in battle, so nothing to worry about. Jephthah answered, okay, well, let's just suppose that God does a miracle here. Suppose you take me back to fight against the Ammonites, and suppose that the Lord gives them to me. Will you keep your promise? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. Okay, they're taking a vow here. We will certainly do as we have promised and as you have heard us say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. They go to Mizpah. And the people made him head and commander over them. And they repeated all of this before the Lord. And they made it sure. Thus far the reading, as they used to say. Now the story continues. Uh, Jephthah was not the idiot that everybody thought him to be. He tried to settle differences with the Ammonites uh, uh, through negotiation before he went to war. And so he went to the heads of the Ammonites and he said, So what beef do you have against Israel? Why are you bringing war against our nation? And they said, Well, 300 years ago, <laughs> they were just picking a fight. They said, Well, 300 years ago when Moses came out of Egypt, he stole land from our ancestors and we won it back. They thought that Jephthah didn't know his history, but Jephthah was no idiot. He said 300 years ago when Moses came out of Egypt leading the children of Israel to the land that God swore to give to them, he asked for permission to pass through the land of the Ammonites. And your forefathers refused him permission. Now he did not just uh, in his strength take the land from them because they had refused him. No, he actually went out of his way to skirt the land of your forefathers. But your forefathers attacked him from the rear. What could he do? He turned and he defended himself and he beat your ancestors back and he took the land under God's favor. You know, it was not his aggressive act. It was your ancestors' aggressive act that led to Israel owning this land 300 years ago. He said, you know, you have no beef. Now when Chemosh, your God, gives you land, do you not claim that God has given it to you? And do you not possess it? God gave our ancestors this land. You have no claim on this land. And it says in the scripture that the Ammonites had no answer for him. In other words, they knew that he knew his history. And they were going to fight him in any case. So now Jephthah knows that uh, he has to go to war. He knows that Israel has been defeated, uh, that they don't have a standing army, and he's supposed to take a bunch of farmers and go against the standing army. And, and he's a little concerned that, you know, the prediction of the Gileadites is going to be true, and he's going to just be killed anyway, and he's going to be a sacrificial lamb. And so he goes to God, and he says, God, and how many of us have done this? God, if you will do this for me, this is what I will do for you. And he makes that kind of a pledge to God. He said, you know, whatever... I have whatever that comes from my house to greet me. If you grant me victory when I return, I will dedicate it to you. I will make it a, an offering to you, God. Well, he didn't suspect. The Gileadites did not suspect. But God had it in mind all along to give him victory. And he comes back having defeated the Ammonites. And who comes out of his village, out of his town to greet him first? Except his daughter, his only child. His only little girl. She comes with a tambourine to greet her daddy returning 
in victory from war. And he realized he had made this pledge to God. And he is so sad that he has made this deal. And he explains it to his daughter and she says, Daddy, you have to keep the pledge that you made to God. Now, some people believe that he offered her as a burnt offering, but uh, the references of Scripture refer to her as never having borne children and remained a virgin the rest of her life. So I don't believe that that was the intention. I believe that he dedicated her uh, almost like a nun uh, to live a celibate life in service to God the rest of her days, which was sad for him that he would not have any ancestors and was certainly sad for her, his daughter that she would have no children. And so ends the story of Jephthah. Now, God hasn't placed these stories in the Bible just so that you would increase your Bible knowledge. You know, sometimes that's what we think. Okay, I got to remember now Jephthah and he did this and, and this is how God used him. There's going to be no quiz when you die to determine whether you know enough of the Bible you know, to get into heaven. Here's why the Bible says God has given us these stories. From the New Testament, Paul's speaking to the young man, Timothy. He said, Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed, which is a translation of the word inspiration. All Scripture is inspired, God-breathed, and it's given to us to teach us about life. So the story is to teach us. It's to correct us and even challenge our thinking and uh, believe me, when it comes to Jephthah and all that uh, surrounds the nature of his self-perception, a lot of us need to be challenged in our thinking. And for training you in how you ought to live, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly enabled to do what God would have you do in life. So this is the reason that this story exists, so that we might learn something from this truth. So here are some lessons to be learned. First of all, uh, we have to acknowledge that we often allow the reality of our life to affect our perception of ourselves. We allow the reality to affect our perception. I mean, not everything in your past is wonderful, right? You know, it was true. He was born of a prostitute. That's not God's design for procreation. And as a result, he was rejected by his family he was rejected by the village. That's just absolutely true. You would say, well, I, thank God that doesn't happen anymore today. We don't use words like illegitimate, born out of wedlock, or worse than that. When in fact we do, we say, well, you, you know, they're just living together. They're not really married, so that child is kind of born out of wedlock. I mean, that still happens. I, we study this this text uh, as pastors and and some other lay leaders study this text early in the week and so it's fresh on my mind and and so I was out with my wife shopping the other day and we were in a store and there was this lady who had a child with her and and uh, I don't believe it was the child's mother and uh, too young to be grandmother so maybe it was an aunt or, or just a babysitter I don't know but this child was begging her to buy something uh, for him in the store and she said I told you I'm not going to buy that for you and he said, well, my daddy will buy it for me. And she said, you don't even know who your daddy is. I thought, wow, you're saying that to a young child, an impressionable child? He says, I do too. She says, who's your daddy? And he mentioned the name of a man. She goes, he's not your daddy. Don't ever say that he's your daddy. I thought, wow. You know, even if that's the case, you know, just think of the label. Just think of the impression. Just think of the self-perception she's pouring on that child at a very early age. And then I had a funeral this week as well, and people come from all over the country, you know, for funerals. And, and uh, this lady came back to support uh, her sister who was uh, laying to rest, um, uh, her husband in death. And uh, she came from a distant state, 
And uh, I hadn't seen her for a while, but years ago she used to be a member of the church and I knew her, I confirmed her child in confirmation way back in the day. And, and so I asked her, so how, how's your son doing? She goes, not good. I said, really, what's, what's going on? She goes, well, he's just uh, totally dysfunctional. He's involved with alcohol and drugs and, and uh, it's all because his father walked out on him when he was a child. He said, uh, I begged him to come back to St. Louis. He had family here. You know, it would be good for him to come back. But he said, the only time I'm going to back to St. Louis is to dance on my father's grave. Only he didn't say dance. It was something worse than that. And I thought, isn't that interesting? You know, that was his reality. His dad walked out on him. His dad abandoned the family when he was young. And that has incredible power over him even to this day. And it's making a life a mess for him. <laughs> I think, you know, it's, sometimes it's true about our past and we use that as a reason why, you know, we can't make a difference in things that matter. Why we excuse ourselves for being failures in life. And, and maybe it's not a circumstance in which you were born. Maybe it's not just because you were poor, because you didn't get an education. You know, maybe that's not the reasons that you place on your failure. Maybe it's something you did. Maybe it's a, a reality that you're not proud of that's still defining who you are in your own mind or, or that others use to define you. You know, maybe there's been a moral failure in your past leading to a divorce. Who knows? I don't know. And that's how you think of yourself, and that's how other people whisper about you, and you allow that to suppress your ability to make a difference in things that matter. You know, you're not worthy to, to lead anything. You're not worthy to be a Christian leader. You're not worthy to talk to anybody about faith because you've had a failure of your own. Maybe you've broke the law. You know, maybe you even did some time, and this is a secret, and you just hope that nobody finds it out because if they do, you're going to have to change churches, change friends, change jobs. I don't know. Some significant moral failure. Something in your past that has caused you guilt and shame. And, and you let that define you. You let the reality, and no one can deny, you can't even deny that that's true. That's true. That's, that's true about me. That's true about my life. And, and I guess that's what I will always be. And that's how Jephthah thought. He's the son of a prostitute rejected by the people, so he felt rejected. And he began to own those things that people said about him. Jephthah had even accepted that himself, but God had not accepted that about him. You know, God never thought of him as the son of a prostitute. He just thought of him as somebody he loved and, and somebody that he wanted to redeem and somebody he wanted to use in a significant way. So sometimes we allow our reality in the past to define us and to keep us from being all that we should be. Sometimes we allow our perception to affect our reality. It's not our reality that defines our perception. It's our perception that defines our reality. And this happens when you compare yourselves to others. And we're great at doing this. You know, we compare ourselves to others and we say we're not their equivalent. And, and therefore we diminish our ability to, to be significant in God's world or, or in our relationships. Uh, a true story. This was uh, kind of my experience. I grew up uh, uh, in a very poor family. And in fact, uh, uh, Don Hollingsworth, who was up here playing lead guitar for us today, and, and George Ozani, our, our great friends, plays the sax for us occasionally. And, and uh, uh, they grew up in houses in North County that were about as big as your three-car garage. I mean, that was their house. And I grew up like that, too. I grew up in a, in a small town. Uh, and even in that small town, I grew up on the wrong side of that small town. You know, it's hardly had two sides, but it did. And uh, my house was right across the street from the railroad tracks that came through town so that when the trains passed, our whole house shook. I remember when my wife first came and, and stayed at that house, she could hardly sleep at night because the trains would just shake the whole house. And then 
And I just thought that's kind of sweet. It makes me go to sleep, you know, but uh, she thought it was going to come through the house. And, and uh, I remember that I was kind of ashamed of the fact that my folks were poor because I had, a, I had a patron who paid for me to go to an affluent college prep Christian high school. And, and uh, of course, you can fake it to make it, you know, when you go to school. You can, you can wear the clothes. You know, I'd save all my money. I worked hard. Uh, folks didn't give me money, but I was able to work hard. And so I could buy the clothes. Nobody at my school knew that I wasn't just like them, you know, raised in an affluent home. Except on my 16th birthday, some of my friends wanted to surprise me, and so they threw a surprise party by coming to my house. I was mortified. Now, I've gotten over that since, but at the time, I thought, man, I was keeping this a secret, and now you know. You know, we couldn't even all get in the house. We had to have the party kind of in the yard because it was such a small house, and it was in such a poor part of town, and folks had junk in the yards. It was, it was a mess. Uh, kind of a funny story about that. A few years ago, uh, we had reason to be back in that part of the world, and, and uh, we had our daughter-in-law with us, and, you know, you kind of say, I want to show you where I grew up, and so we, we took uh, our daughter-in-law uh, with our son uh, by that house, and as we pulled up, the house looked smaller and dingier now than it did even then, and, uh, and uh, there's still trash all over the yard, and big dogs came rushing against the front window. It was only like a four-bedroom, uh, not a four-bedroom, a four-room house, a four-room house, and didn't even have indoor plumbing when I was a kid. And, and, uh, and when we pulled up to that house, we pulled off to the side where, because the railroad was across the street, so there was a place where they would come and work on their trains. And uh, as I pulled up, I said, wow, some hillbillies have moved into that house. And my wife said knowingly and, and wisely, hillbillies have always lived in that house, Steve. <laughs> and I knew she spoke the truth. And we can allow that perception to weigh us down and we can think, you know, I don't have any right to be anything important in the world because I just didn't get the breaks. You know, I don't have the smarts. I don't have the athletic ability. I don't have the relationships that other people have. I'm disadvantaged and that's just reality. Even though I had all the abilities that everybody else had, you know, I allowed that to define me for so long. God doesn't look at you that way. You know, God sees things differently. God doesn't look at your reality and think that you're somehow disqualified. God doesn't even look at your self-perception and somehow think that he can never use you. God looks at you through the eyes of grace. He says, I have called you my child. You know, what else do you need? Paul said, we are ambassadors for Christ. I mean, an ambassador is a pretty high honor. And not just an ambassador to the president, but an ambassador to God. God sees us differently. See, it's not what you've done. It's not what others have done to you. It's what God has done for you that matters. Amen? By the way, Jephthah's rejection by the people also served a good purpose. I, I, I think almost to the story, and I, I hate to do this to you, because not everybody knows the stories the way I know them, but in the Old Testament, there's a story about Joseph, you know, the, the kid who had the coat of many colors, and he was one of 12 sons to Jacob, who was the uh, founder of Israel, the nation, and his brothers were jealous because his daddy loved him more. And uh, he gave him this special code. And, and, and so they were going to kill him, but they decided to sell him into slavery. Do you know the story? It's in the book of Genesis. And, and uh, so Joseph was sold into slavery uh, by his brothers. And they said, we're done with this guy. And, and uh, yet he became second only to Pharaoh. God continued to work in his life, even though he was rejected, even though he was a prisoner, even though he was a slave. God worked in his life and brought him up to a place of power 
till ultimately his brothers had to come to Egypt to buy grain. And eventually Joseph enabled his whole family to, uh, to experience wealth and success. And, and the day that his daddy died, his brothers feared him because they thought, now he's going to get his revenge. Now he's going to beat us. Now he's going to kill us. And Joseph, when he knew what they were thinking, said, wow, I would never do that. I know that what you did to me was wrong. You meant it for evil, but God used it for good. And I think that about Jephthah. You know, when you labeled me the son of a prostitute, when you rejected me, you meant it for evil. You wanted to hurt me. And you could say that about people who've labeled you, who've rejected you, who put you down. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God often uses our setbacks to create character in us and to develop us in ways that would not have happened had we not had that rejection. And so it was for Jephthah. He became a mighty warrior. You know, he used him. I, I read a book a while back called The Dark Side of Leadership, and it talks about how dysfunction and how failure and, and hardship actually is a means that God uses to build strength in human character. And so it doesn't matter how you were born. God can turn that around and use what you think was a negative to be a positive, no matter what your birth order, no matter, you know, what your birth circumstance, no matter if your daddy did walk out on you, no matter if you don't know who your daddy is, no matter if you were raised in a single family and you say, I didn't have all the opportunities that other kids had. You know, I was, I was raised the son of an alcoholic father. Uh, he wasn't an especially uh, mean man. And he provided for his family to some degree, but, uh, you know, it led to his early death. And, and I've done some study about this because, you know, you should be self-informed about who you are. And, and everything I read says that the sons, especially more so than the daughters, the sons of alcoholic dads are either underachievers or overachievers. Now, I've had a couple of brothers who are underachievers, smarter and gifted more than me, uh, who, who haven't done much with their life. And, and they could point to that as a reason uh, it worked just the opposite in me. I've achieved well more than I should have, you know, just by drive, maybe seeking daddy approval. Who knows why? But sometimes dysfunction is the means by which God blesses you. And uh, labels are the means by which God uses to make you more than you might otherwise be. What does it matter? There's a story in the Old Testament where God was going to choose a king to replace Saul, who had rejected him. And he he sends the prophet down to Bethlehem to a man by the name of Jesse. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose a new king from Jesse's sons. And Jesse had quite a few sons. And, and uh, Samuel goes down and the first son comes and he goes, Ah, Eliab, the strongest, the tallest, already a commander in the Lord's army. This must be the new king. And God whispers in Samuel's ear, Not him. You look at the outward appearance, he said to Samuel, but God looks at the potential. God looks at the heart. You know, how often we get hung up on outward stuff. You know, our past, you know, the labels that people put on us. God doesn't look at that stuff. He looks at your heart. He looks at your potential. So even your dysfunction, even the truth about you might be used by God. Well, what happens when you get driven out? What happens when you get rejected? Unfortunately, what happened to Jephthah happens to most of us. You know, we surround ourselves with other rejected people. And uh, we were already feeling bad about ourselves. They only bring us down even more. It says he was surrounded by worthless people. This is why, uh, young people, your parents care about who you hang with, you know. There's a scripture in the New Testament that says, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, this isn't only true of children. It isn't only true of teenagers. It's also true of adults. 
Now, I know that we're supposed to extend ourselves, you know, into the lives of people who have, uh, are, are down and out, people who are troubled, people who are sinners. Jesus identified with sinners. He hung out with sinners, but he also hung out with 12 disciples. You know, we just talked about that networking night, you know, this evening, an opportunity for you to be with other Christians. You need to hang with other Christians as well. You need to have balance in your life. Otherwise, hanging with worthless people will pull you down into their attitudes and the behaviors. It's a danger for you and for your faith. You know, I, I'm a pastor. I, I study the scripture. I teach the scripture. But uh, I'm always so sitting with a group of men every week. You know, and to them, I'm just Stephen. They're not especially impressed with me. You know, and we can study the scripture and we can talk about the value of that scripture in our life, in our marriages, in our families, and in our own personal lives. You need that. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some, but come together to be uplifted and encouraged. And all the more as you see that day drawing near, I commend you for being here, but being here is not enough. Here I just talk to you. You need to be with other Christians who live life with you. The networking night's a great way to meet some other people. You don't have to form a small group. You don't have to be in a small group through that event, but you need to hang with other Christian people, you know, that you can be honest with. Now, also, Jephthah's independence uh, had an upside to it. You know, because he was rejected by people, that freed him uh, from concern about what they thought of him. John Maxwell, who's a uh, a, a leader of leaders, uh, was a Christian pastor for many years and now is a consultant even to some of America's largest companies. He uses Christian principles, but he's known more as just a, a consultant to businesses. Uh, had published a book a few years ago called The 44 Irrefutable Principles of Leadership. And one of them was, you can't lead people if you need people. You'll never lead people if you need people. What he meant by that is if you are so needy that you need to be affirmed and you need to be loved and you need to be accepted by these people, these people own you. You know, you're always sucring their favor. You're always cowering to their desires for you. Rather than standing up and being an influence to them, you know, you are controlled by your need to be accepted. Your sense of self-worth should be measured by the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, you are perfectly acceptable, perfectly positioned. You have a relationship with the one who made heaven and earth. He can do everything through you. You know, whether other people accept you or don't accept you should not weigh heavily on who you think you are, how much money you have made, what success you've had in life, what education you've experienced, what degree of authority you wield at the office. You know, your value should be found in the cross of Christ. Your relationships will determine, you know, who you think you are. Your relationship with God in Christ Jesus is the most important of all of those. Now let me just kind of wrap this up because um, Jephthah still, despite the fact of being chosen by God and being chosen by the people, still had this latent belief that he was unacceptable. And before he went to do this impossible thing, he wanted to strike a deal with God. You know, he uh, desired... Uh, to, uh, to make a deal. I, I say he's, he's, God is not a big fan of Monty Hall and the Let's Make a Deal show. You know, Jephthah said, Lord, if you will do this, if you will do this, and it's so common in our human character, if you will do this, then I will do this for you. You think God needs you to do anything for him? <laughs> you know, what could you do for him? Could you give him more money? Could you give him more honor? Could you give him more glory? You know, why do you need to make a deal with God? And yet we do it so often. It's a denial of your standing with God. Nothing you can offer him would move him to love you more. Nothing you promise to do for him will make him more of a fan of your life. 
You know, you are already perfectly acceptable, already perfectly loved. He's already more than willing to invest himself in your life. And when Jephthah made this deal, God said, well, I'm going to teach you a lesson by this. And he brought his daughter out to greet him, and he had to fulfill what he had promised. It's unfortunate and it's sad, but I'm sure that Jephthah never made that kind of a pledge to God before. You don't need to do that. Please stop doing that. It won't increase God's love for you or his ability to help you. Now, let me make a a final warning, and then we're going to move on. My final warning seems odd, and it it may seem even uh, contradictory. You may be too good for your own good. It's possible. Because people who know the reality of their situation, people who have felt the sting of a label, people who feel their unworthiness are always amazed at the grace of God. But people who think they're really something, people who think they don't have much to apologize for, people who say, compared to other people, I'm a pretty good Christian, they have a low estimation of God's grace and their need for him in life. You may be too good for your own good. Here's what Jesus had to say about that. Truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For when John the Baptist came preaching repentance, they received his message and they repented and they were thrilled by God's acceptance. But even after you saw that, still you did not repent or believe in him. You know, those of us who think that we're something in the eyes of God may in fact be uh, inhibiting God's ability to use us because we don't think we need his help. When in fact those who are very much aware of their unworthiness and their failure and their flawed nature, their reality, their self-perception, these are people who say, God, I need you. I cannot do it without you. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for making me acceptable in Christ Jesus. I pray that you've been blessed uh, by the study today and that uh, all of us who've experienced labels, all of us who have placed labels upon ourselves, all of us who have doubted our worthiness, our ability to be used by God would understand that it's not what you've done or what others have done to you, but what God has done for you that makes you worthy and makes you significant and makes you perfectly positioned to do something that matters in this world, in your family, in your relationships, in the kingdom of God. Amen.